There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir. They have the car stopped in We still don't know who pulled the trigger. everyone and welcome to police off the cuff real crime stories i'm your host retired nypd sergeant bill cannon and today i'm actually you know i didn't give my whole spiel i'm a 27 year veteran of the nypd and if you like real crime from a police perspective you're in the right place you know folks i covered yesterday the stockton california uh, serial shootings they have their serial killings actually and these are a concern for any law enforcement agency. Whenever you have anything that's a pattern, and in this case, they use that word serial, serial killer, that is not good for any jurisdiction. And the chief there is very careful um, in his wording and how he describes this because it can cause panic in a community. And one of the things that they did put together, which I think is thrilling, and I, I entitled this episode uh, the investigative component of the uh, Stockton, California serial killer. How are they going to investigate this? How are they going to put this together and how are they going to solve this? And one of the first things that I recommended, and they, they have already done it, so I know that they're on the right track, they established the task force. So what does that mean? That means they put some of their most talented investigators, the most talented detectives, and they put them together with other jurisdictions, other police agencies, and, and they, they do what Phil talks about all the time, spitball, hypothesize, theorize. They go over the cases in great depth. They look at these instances, uh, the ages of the victims, the, the race of the victims, the, the chief here does, doesn't want to say it, but five out of the six um, victims in this case are, are male Hispanics. And I know he doesn't want to put that in there because it causes a lot of people from that community to really get upset and to wonder why are they, why or the, why is this person targeting Hispanic people. And then I think the chief was able to say one of the victims, of course, was a male white and a surviving victim was a female black. So does that break up the pattern, uh, break up the serial killer's pattern? I don't think so. I think he's still targeting uh, a specific group of people. The other thing that I believe that he's targeting uh are homeless people, because I believe almost all of them were homeless, uh, all but maybe one. In fact, even the female, uh, the, the female black, uh, she was homeless, and she got the best look at the shooter, the only look, because all the other victims, six victims, I believe, were killed. And she describes, and we'll play a little bit of video later in regards to it, and as I said, no one likes to say the word serial killer. So one of the recommendations I also have when I speak about this 
is I think they should put undercover investigators in the homeless encampments. They should actually absolutely be hanging out with the homeless people where they live. Does someone perhaps know this guy? And there is, a, later on, I'll show you some video. He has a very unusual walk, a very unusual gait. And I'm going to show you guys that because I think it's important for everyone to see that. And, you know, as I said, the chief here, he's very careful with his words. He's very careful, uh, as he should be, in, in describing this individual. Because, look, this can cause panic in a community. There is no doubt it can cause panic. So let me play a little bit of this. And when you all see the video, I want you to pay close attention to the uneven stride that this person has. Again, this person is a person of interest. Again, we have no evidence that connects this person as committing any of these crimes, but it's a person that we are interested in talking to. Also with that, we also want you to notice just how upright this person's posture is. You know, I like to think we all have a normal gait and walk about us when we walk around, but this person's posture is extremely upright and it's noticeable. That's something else that you'll be able to notice on a video once we show that. With that, as far as interconnecting these cases, we've done that through ballistics. And once you start working with ballistics, the process gets very slow. It, it takes a long time to confirm um, the information and it takes a long time to get those official reports. But we do have ballistic evidence that are, are, are linking our cases in a company with some video footage as well. We have seven cases linked, and I'm just gonna give some quick stats on these cases. Uh, we find that the average age of the victim is 42. We find that the sex of the victims are, are mostly male. We also find that the races are, are mostly Hispanic as well. I'm gonna talk about the days between these incidences that we believe may have a connection. Between the incident one and two, there are six days. In between incident two and three, there's 448 days, which is quite some time from when the incident two happened as compared to when incident three had occurred. Incident Between incident three and four, it was 34 days. Between incidents four and five, it was 19 days. Between incidents five and six, it was 22 days. And between incidents six and seven, it was six days. Of these seven, one of them occurred outside the city. It, it occurred in Oakland, and we've been partnering with Oakland Police Department to um, have, have tabletop discussions as far as what information we have. Another development we've had is we had the opportunity to interview our only surviving victim. Uh, the circumstances regarding this victim took place last year. This was a black female adult. She was in her tent when she heard someone walking around her campsite. When she came out of her tent, she encountered someone holding a gun at her. There's multiple shots at her as she tried to defend herself by advancing at the suspect. At that time, the suspect lowered his or her shooting platform. She provided us a description of what she believed that person was at the time of the incident. All right, so what the chief is basically talking about, they had a, uh, a woman, a homeless woman, who, who actually survived the shooting. And uh, she's their best 
the best witness to tell them what this guy looks like. And she described a male, but he had a mask on almost. She described the thing as like a COVID mask covering his face. And when he pointed the gun at her, he had it, you know, like a thug, how a thug holds a gun. But he quickly, um, as she advanced on him, she, I think to save her own life, she advanced on the shooter. And he went into what she described as a, almost like a Hollywood stance, but what she really described, what's known as a combat stance. He got in, in a combat position, which would indicate perhaps he's trained. Perhaps he's trained in the use of firearms. So that's more or less what she was um, she was talking about, more so than, you know, the Hollywood stance. She was talking about a combat stance that he took. And that's important uh, because, again, as I said, that indicates potentially he's been trained in the use of firearms. To get to tonight, for the first time we are hearing from a woman who says she is the sole survivor of the suspected Stockton serial killer. Um, I ran towards him knowing that I'd have to get closer to the street if I wanted to survive. And then um, as I did that, then he, uh, you know, got down like a, like a, movie star pose you know what I mean because at first he was just holding it like a like a you know like a like a thug and I was really hoping his aim was gonna be off because it was like you know like that you know what I mean and then as I went towards him then then he got down like you know with, with two and then and then it became my height well the 209 times just putting out this video with the woman who says she survived the April 2021 attack in Stockton even describing the moments after she was shot and her injuries so I was scooting on my back then I got to the street and and, and then I said as clear as day um, I, I, I know it's scary. You can keep yourself out of harm's way, but please call 911. I'm dying. And in the hospital, the, the, they took seven bullets out. I mean, I'm sorry, six, six bullets out. Mm -hmm. And then um, and then one one was removed from, I mean, one popped out of here, just two, two bullets inside me, and then one right here. Man, very, very brave woman. I mean, uh, she was shot six times. And then the seventh round didn't penetrate but what that's one of the things the evidence we have is that um the it has to be a semi-automatic because she didn't indicate that the perpetrator reloaded so revolvers they hold six rounds semi-automatics can hold up to 15 or 16 so he shot her seven times so again it has to be a uh, semi-automatic. However, the police are not revealing the type of firearm it is. So they haven't told us. They've said that they've connected the ballistics together. And in this instance here, it's not showing all the victims. Here it's showing five victims, and there was, there was a total of seven, six killed and one who survived. Um, I had gone over some information yesterday in relative to evidence. And this, I spoke about uh, some of the ballistics evidence that could be left at the scene. And this is a spent casing. And you can see at the top of these casings, there's what's called extraction and ejection marks. And those are unique to the firearm that ejected this, we'd call it a spent shell or spent casing. And 
left that would be left on the scene because a semi-automatic ejects the rounds from the ejection port, excuse me, ejects the spent shells, the casings. And those can be positively identified by uh, IBIS, in Integrated Ballistic Identification System, and uh, a, a computer program called Brass Catcher. That's the nickname for it. And here you get a better look. I showed a lot some of this yesterday, but I don't want to cheat anyone who wasn't um, watching yesterday. This is basically the anatomy of a cartridge or a bullet. You could see at the bottom, that's the primer. And that would be where the um, firing pin strikes. In here is the gunpowder. And the upper part of the bullet here is the actual lead casing or copper jacketed hollow point, which is this, is, uh, this bullet. Um, what this is here is something called lands and grooves. And this is made from the barrel of the gun as the bullet um, exits the barrel of the gun. And the inside barrel of the gun from the machining done in the manufacturing process leaves a unique lands and grooves on the projectile. And that's what this is. And that also is unique um, to the firearm that fired this projectile. And that's how they are um, they are uniquely identifying all these shootings and linking them together. So, so important. I told you guys yesterday that when I was in homicide in Manhattan North and when I worked in the detective squad, I worked in robbery, I worked in anti-crime, phenomena that this, the NYPD saw a lot of times was that guns were passed around between thugs you know birds of a feather flock together you've heard that before birds of a feather lend, lend each other guns to do what they would describe as work if someone in manhattan had a gun and he wanted to lend it out to his compadre in the bronx he would do so and that person may do a shooting that night in the bronx and then the same person may give the gun back to the person in Manhattan who owns the gun, and he may lend it out to someone in Brooklyn. And that's how they would link these shootings together to a single gun. Oh, this gun is um, this gun is lent out all over the place. Well, as Pony, yes, uh, the markings on a firearm are unique to the gun that fired it, both in bullet. And in brass, uh, I, I didn't have it today. I um, yesterday I showed some brass that had unique markings of the um, firing pin, leaves an impression on the primer, and that is another identifier on the spent shell. So it, it, it's just that's how all of this stuff can be identified. You know, some of the things I spoke about too. I think they should put undercovers. In these, um, in these homeless encampments and have them speak to these homeless people. Someone may know this guy. Why do I think the shooter is also a homeless guy? Michelle Ballard, thank you for the 449 super sticker. Much appreciated. Why do I think that the shooter potentially could be homeless too? To me, it just seems that it's a 
distinct possibility because why is he shooting other home, uh, homeless people? Does he hate homeless people? Or is he one of them himself? Could he be killing himself when he's shooting these people? Now, again, I'm going way past my pay grade. I'm not a psychoanalyst, but it would make sense to me that potentially this shooter could be a homeless person himself. And he's going into these homeless encampments and, and, and shooting homeless people. Um, so I think that the detectives should definitely concentrate on homeless encampments, food pantries, churches, um, any place that uh, homeless people gather together and and start to talk to a lot of people. You get more information out there through talking to potential uh, victims than you do by just observing. Um, the briefing of arrests, so, so, so important. Anyone that's arrested in connection in this geographical area, debrief them. See what they know. See if they know anything about these shootings. So, so important. And when people take for granted, uh, oh, these, these, this guy doesn't know anything. They're really not doing their job as an investigator. You need to talk to everybody. Get information. Get information out there. Media. Media broadcast on these shootings is so, so damn important. Uh, because the media, everyone watches TV. You put that information out there. That information about him having an unusual gait is his walk. He almost has a limp to his walk. Someone may recognize that walk. We all have a unique walk. My family all walk the same way. We have our feet pointing outward, and we have that little bit of a duck walk. They would describe it. But our family walks like that, and not just me, everyone in my family. So sometimes, and I, you guys are going to be laughing at this, sometimes you see someone, you go, I know that so-and-so from the back because I recognize his or her walk. So unbelievable, you know? And it's so true. I want to show a little bit of um, another serial shooting, serial killer was the Beltway Snipers. And that was baffling uh, in, in the Washington, D.C. area. And it baffled investigators for a long time. And it was so terrifying. They were shooting people that for no reason and law enforcement couldn't figure it out. Different person now. Not the same young man who terrorized the entire Washington region for nearly a month. I mean, I, I was a monster. If you look up the definition, I mean, that's what a monster is. I, I was a ghoul. I was a thief. I, I, I stole people's lives. Lee Boyd Malvo, convicted in the D.C. area sniper case, says he's truly sorry for what happened. His exclusive interview with the Washington Post comes on the 10-year anniversary of the shooting spree that left 10 people in the Washington region dead over the course of about three weeks. Speaking from Red Onion State Prison in Virginia, where he's serving a life sentence, Malvo, who's now 27, tells the Post's Josh White what it was like to be under the control of his older partner in the killings, John Allen Muhammad. And he told me, the old person has to die. Lee Malvo has to die. And he gives jarring descriptions of how they deliberately, but randomly, went about shooting their victims. It's the detail in Malvo's accounts that is often so haunting, like his description of what happened here in the parking lot of this Home Depot. 
when Malvo was the spotter and John Allen Muhammad shot Linda Franklin, who just happened to be at her car. Malvo describes how he gave the signal to shoot, how Muhammad, on a hill nearby, fired the kill shot, and how the image of Franklin's husband is the one that stands out for him. The first one is Mr. Franklin's eyes. And what makes that, it, they're penetrating, but it's, it is the worst sort of pain I have ever seen in my life. His eyes. It's the worst. Words do not possess the depth in which to fully convey that emotion. And what I felt when I saw it. Retired FBI agent Brad Garrett, who questioned Malvo after his capture, says he's not surprised that Malvo is willing to pin much of the terror on Muhammad when he wasn't before. The spell is gone. The whole idea that Muhammad was a good person or actually helped him in life has dissolved. And so now what he's doing is stepping forward. He's taking responsibility, but he's clearly putting Muhammad in the picture. Muhammad was executed in 2009. Josh White, the Post reporter, couldn't get new pictures of Malvo. The prison allowed no cameras, writing utensils, or paper. White interviewed Malvo through plexiglass. Can you tell us what he looks like now? You know, he looks similar to what he looked like before, though about 10 years older. Uh, he's kind of a slight guy. He, he's not particularly tall. He's not uh, particularly heavy. Uh, his hair was very closely cut. Paul LaRufa, one of the first people shot during the spree, says he forgives Malvo. If I held the same hate today or that I felt in 2002 when he tried to kill me, I would have wasted or, or just damaged the last, he, I would have let him damage the last 10 years of my life. And he hasn't. One particularly chilling account from Malvo in the post interview, he said during the shooting spree, he sometimes went to the news conferences held by law enforcement officials. Malvo said he went to those events for quote, intelligence collection. Wolf, when those officials were speaking, and telling us where they thought the killers may be, he was sometimes in the audience. Yeah, I was sometimes at those news conferences myself. That is pretty chilling. Uh, but he does speak about one particular incident where he, he supposedly, Malvo, defied Mohammed. What happened? That's right. Malvo says that at one point, John Mohammed told him he would have to kill a pregnant woman. Malvo says when the time came, he simply just didn't do it. And he later told Mohammed that the circumstances just weren't right for him to pull the trigger. That's the one time he drew the line. He couldn't kill a pregnant woman. Malvo serving life in prison without, right. without, the possibility without the possibility of parole. Of parole. He'll so he'll be, spend the rest of his life. There. Yes, he will. He says he's a different person. You know, from these cases, when you and I have spoken about this before. When I would go to the scene of a homicide, sometimes there would be a huge crowd surrounding uh, the scene. And I always would photograph the crowd for that very reason. Here, the perp from this shooting, was hanging out at the press conferences. Unbelievable, right? Uh, we, we, have, we have a new, um, a, a, a brand new guest with us today. I'll bring him up onto the screen. There he is, Phil Gravaldi. Phil, glad you joined in. What's going on? Not too much, Billy. When you, uh, when you got a hold of me, I was out and about. I uh, shifted my schedule around a little bit to come on because this is really, really an important case. I think it's very scary. And I was listening uh, in the car to a lot of what you were saying. I think you're right on track, Bill. This is uh, something that's going to take old-fashioned police work. Listen, video evidence is going to be very important, but 
I think that uh, secreting plainclothes officers into the areas where these homeless encampments are is going to be important. Uh, surveillance by plainclothes officers in the area. You're going to have to try and uh, catch this guy in the act, it seems like. However, the investigation, whatever information they have, uh, specific leads, checking on ex-military ex-police officers since we feel that there's a possibility he could have some type of training. Those are all the things that I think, uh, you know, right on track with what you were saying earlier uh, should be going on and probably are going on. And again, uh, you talked about the uh, specifics of tying the the, uh, the ballistics together, whether it be the uh, lands and grooves on the round or the striations on the shell cation. I think you explained that pretty well. The every Every gun has a fingerprint on when it when it um, fires around, uh, whether it be from the shell casing or from the uh, actual projectile, so they can tie all of those different things. Yeah, I, you have it right there, the lands and grooves on the actual round. Um, I had a case where uh, shell casings were left on the scene, and we were able to tie. Uh, we didn't have uh, ballistic that was uh, uh, ballistic evidence that was uh, able to be uh, you know examined. So we did examine uh, striations, which is the marks that are left on the shell casing when it's ejected from the uh, firearm and we're able to tie that into the gun that was later recovered. So uh, again, all of that stuff is going to be evidence if they do recover the firearm. And I believe that's how they put this whole case together that there's uh, uh, numerous people being shot by the same firearm. You know, folks, yesterday I had said, I wanted to show you what a ballistic tank looks like. There it is. This, is. this is a ballistic tank. And you see, uh, well, you could see, I'll show you another photo. The detective would take the firearm and at an angle like that, fire it into the water. And the water, when he, once he fired the round into the water, you see a big like tidal wave inside the tank. And the round would sink to, to the bottom of the tank. And then very scientifically, they would take a stick with a piece of gum on it and remove that round. And then it would be put and examined under a microscope. But that this is how it's done. That's a, that's a good shot of the ballistic tank, the firearm, is, and then they can make the comparison whether or not that the round that was fired is coming from the same gun. But you could see here these striations are the same on these two. So they look underneath the microscope and they can uh, tell whether or not the round was fired from a very uh, specific gun. Yeah, Billy, I actually was involved in two incidents where I fired my firearm during my career. And the first time that I went to, uh, you, I was directed to go to the police academy, to the ballistic section. And I thought that they were going to take me down to the range and fire the gun. However, we were in a small office and we had that tank there and they actually fired it into the tank. Uh, the tank is really not big. I, I'd say it's the size of uh, a large desk, let's say. And um, they were able to recover it around. Like you said, they get a big stick with some clay or gum on the end of it. They pulled around up. And the reason that they did that when I fired my firearm was in case um, later on a person shows up, uh, let's say shot or, or God forbid, dead. Uh, they want to have those bullets on file to either include it, uh, you know, based on the shots that you fired or excluded if there's some allegation that, uh, you know, well, there was a shooting here and the police shot and killed or shot, uh, you know, so-and-so. So they keep, anytime you fire your, uh, your firearm in the NYPD, they keep a, uh, you know, a, a sample of your uh, ballistic uh, information from your, from your gun. You know, they fire, they fire it once or twice and they, uh, they keep it on file. 
Tara Ellis, thank you for the 499 super chat. The amount of time between shootings is getting shorter. But the 400 plus days between two and three could mean he was in jail or rehab. Tara, very astute of you to uh to pick that up. Very possible. He could have been inside, he could have been arrested. And unfortunately, the only way these people are caught is that they continue doing what they're doing. So unfortunately, someone else inevitably is going to have to get shot uh, unless they can arrest him with the gun traveling. I spoke about yesterday, is he, there's two types of serial killers they talk about, organized and disorganized. And organized serial killers are um, above average IQ. They usually have a job. They assimilate pretty well into society. They travel, so usually they have a car. I think it would be unusual for a serial shooter or killer to be taking public transportation. Could it happen? Absolutely. I think it would be a little bit unusual. Having said that, one of the things, and I'm recommending, I'm making a lot of recommendations investigatively, and I'm sure the Stockton police are doing a lot of them. So there's a task force. The task force should respond to every single shooting in the Stockton, California area, as well as some of the outlying uh, counties. Be on the scene in case the ballistic matches. They're there. They're going to put any peculiarities to the shooting, the description of the shooter, and they're going to be right on the scene. And that's how a case like this will get solved. This is obviously what we call a pattern, serial pattern. And there's different... um, Even though it is a pattern, not every single shooting is the same. The ballistics is is coming back the same. How did the person approach? Who did the person approach? Who did the person shoot? Where did the person come from? Did the person come from a car? Was it closer in the uh, the city or was it on the outskirts? Was it in a homeless encampment, which is a lot of these people getting shot or homeless? So every detail of these shootings needs to be memorialized on uh, complaint follow-ups by by the task force. Absolutely, Billy. And I think that the fact that they form a task force uh, in my day and in your day, uh, there would be, um, you know, numerous anti-crime units in the area. They would be conducting stop, question, and frisk. You have a pretty good description of the guy. He has that unusual walk, that gait that they talk about, that the, uh, they, the uh, officer talked about at the press conference. So, again, if you're in the area and you can enlist, the greatest uh, police tactic that was ever discovered was stop, question, and frisk. You know, you see someone suspicious in the area, fits the description, you're able to stop, talk to that person, see if the level of suspicion goes up, and then frisk that person. That might be the key component to finding this person that's committing these atrocities. Police say five men were shot and killed between July and late September. The victims ranging in age from 21 to 54. The crimes happened just miles apart, late at night or early morning, and are believed to be connected. Now officials say this newly released... This is so, so important because really, can you identify this person from this uh, this is taken from a video. It's really a silhouette of a human being. However, what is unusual is the person's gait, his walk, his gait. And I spoke about this before. We all have a unique walk. Some of us more unique than others. Some people bounce up and down. Some walk like a duck. Some move back and forth. 
he almost has what what is like a limp type walk where he's you know over exaggerating it. And one of the things I said, and it's a possibility, his right ankle could have a, a gun on it, and that throws off your gait. I know because I wore an ankle holster for years. I think near the end of my career, I stopped wearing it because it's not tactically, it's not a good thing to do. Uh, it's just very difficult to get to when you need, if you need to get to a firearm quickly. It's like, oh, let me bend over and remove my gun from my right ankle. Excuse me, my left ankle. If you're righty, the ankle holster should be on your left ankle. If you're lefty, it uh, should be on the right ankle. So it does throw off your walk up your gait. I don't know, Phil, if you ever wore an ankle holster, you can oh, yeah. test that. Absolutely, Billy. It, it also, over the years, I started to develop, because uh, when you're off duty, it's hard to carry a gun summertime and your waistband and different things like that. So uh, I would carry it on my ankle and I started to develop problems with my ankle where I had to switch it to the other side. So again, yeah, it could definitely affect the way that you, your posture or your way you walk. So that's a great point, Billy. And, you know, the, the other thing that I think uh, really is kind of unusual in this, that big break in a period of time bef uh, between these uh, shootings. I'm sure that they're checking other jurisdictions throughout the whole country, perhaps, to see if there's any other similar type shootings, because that is an unusual trait. There, there seems to be a very long break in the uh, in the time that uh, the shooting took place. And one of the chatters brought up a very good point. Could have been in prison, could have been in rehab, something like that. There was something distracting his attention to these shootings in that period of time, or he was somewhere else doing it. Well, as Pony, thank you so much for the 1999 Super Chat. Are police still allowed to stop questioning and frisk? Yes, they are. Yes. However, there is a huge microscope on it. And every time they do a stop question and frisk, they're investigated more than the person that they stopped. So it's it's what is the results of that? A lot of cops stop doing it because they're put under the microscope more than the the criminal or alleged criminal that they're, they're stopping question and frisking, but it is a tool. It's, it's given police are given that right by the courts to do that, but it's been under the microscope and it's gotten such bad press, you know, in New York city uh, area, they call it stop and frisk. And every time a media person says that, I said, that's not what it's called. Where did you get that from? And then they get all embarrassed all the, cause it's not called stop and frisk. It's called stop question in frisk i said if i took 33 cents out of every one of your dollars would you be happy so stop taking 33 percent out of this uh this procedure because that's what you're doing when you call it stop and frisk i get very personal and very upset about this so uh let me continue playing this video because it's really it shows it's important image pulled from video surveillance could be a person of interest it could be very well a suspect or it could be very well a witness to his incidences. 54-year-old Lorenzo Lopez was shot and killed last week. I'm still kind of in disbelief. It's going to take a lot of time for, for closure to happen because, uh, you know, he was a big part of the family. His younger brother, Jerry, heartbroken and missing his best friend. How is life going to be now without him? It's going to be pretty lonely, I'm telling you that. Having them, uh, you know, talk to when when things were bad or things are good or going to be a whole different thing now. With no break in the case and a possible serial killer on the loose, Stockton's police chief is asking for the public's help. Look at your ring cameras. Look at whatever footage you have and please help us out. 
and demanding an end to the bloodshed. Stop the killing. Kathy Park, NBC News. I mean, you, you, the, the chief says stop the killing. This guy, this guy's a lunatic, the guy who's doing this killing. I mean, you think he's going to listen to the chief saying, oh, stop the killing? I mean, one of the things, you know, right away, uh, out of the shoot, FBI, ATF, local police all together. And I hope the FBI and the ATF, they're in this task force. I really do, because you need all the big guns on this case right from the beginning. These are homeless people. They have just as many rights as any other human being that's being shot. And, you know, if this goes out into the wealthier neighborhoods, all of a sudden, you know, you'll have the Air National Guard on it, too. You know, you'll have uh, everyone. But right away, all of these law enforcement agencies should be on it. They should be working this together because it's 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 a real serious six six people dead, a seventh victim, the female who survived it. And that's the person that we get a lot of information from. You know, Billy, I want to talk quickly about a stop question and frisk that uh, helped solve a, a pattern, a murder pattern. It was actually a robbery pattern that turned into some murders. Back in the 80s when I was in uh, the robbery squad in the 7-0 precinct, uh, I had a pattern where a guy was taking a, a metal pipe five, six o'clock in the morning and clubbing uh, people on their way to work or, or you know, uh, going shopping, usually senior citizens, clubbing them over the head and robbing them. So, uh, there was one or two cases where the victims were killed. Uh, anti-crime uh, stopped a guy and they saw him throw a pipe into the bushes. Uh, they didn't have anything on him. They knew that there was a pattern. They weren't sure if he fit the, the description. They did a stop, question, and frisk. I got a good description off of that stop, question, and frisk when I came in later that morning. They had stopped him about 5 in the morning. I came in at 9.30. My partner and I uh, went out. Uh, based on a specific article of clothing, it was a gold jacket uh, that the uh, anti-crime wrote down on the stop, question, and frisk that he was wearing. We went to a drug location. Uh, we didn't get out of the car. We just asked one of the person we, we thought was dealing drugs. We're not going to get out and uh, uh, frisk you. Don't run. Did you see anybody with a gold jacket? We showed them what we thought was a uh, uh, description of the guy. They said, yeah, a guy wearing a gold jacket walked up that way. We drove about five or six blocks and we happened to see a guy holding a gold jacket in his hand, going to a store. We stopped him questioned him, frisked him, brought him in, put him in lineups and got many hits and cleared the homicide case. So that's the type of police work that's going to wind up uh, solving a case like this. It's probably uh, of the best part that you can do. I mean, you don't have a lot to go on here as far as suspects. So you have to be in the area. They need to, uh, they already formed the task force. Like you said, Billy, ATF should be involved, FBI, all local state agencies get together uh, formulate a plan, uh, put uh, different plainclothes units in the area, secrete yourself into that area. And you have to, it's a game of cat and mouse at this point. And if the guy goes to strike as well as the investigation should still continue on, you know, questioning parolees, uh, go into ex-military that might have a beef with homeless people, uh, all of those things. Uh, and they'll, they'll eventually uh, solve this case. Marilyn Mineta, I, I love the uh, how you guys are invested in this, and uh, you come up with some really good stuff. Bill and Phil, do you think it's possible for someone to recognize his walk because they know him really good? What do you think? I think exactly that. Yes, 100%. Sometimes we would get people, well, I was an anti-crime for six and a half years, we'd come get people come up to us, listen, 
there's this guy and he's living by, uh, by the train trestle in Riverside Park. And he has this weird walk. Hey, people would tell us information all the time. So Marilyn, great that you picked that up. And absolutely. I want to just talk about something else that's called in, in regards to serial killers. It's called <coughs> geographical profiling. And as much as that has to do with victims, it has to do with the perpetrator too. And what it means is the perpetrator probably lives around there. Why would he travel 50 miles or 100 miles to shoot somebody? So there's a very good chance that this person lives in this general uh, vicinity. And that's part of geographical profiling relative to patterns of serial killers. The other thing is when we, I saw when I played the um, video of Malvo, uh, the, the Beltway sniper, they had that FBI profile. He seems like he's on every damn channel. I would just like to put it out there that the profiling experts on the Beltway sniper were the worst I've ever seen in my life. It was outrageously bad. They, they picked exactly the opposite of who it turned out to be. So I lost a lot of faith in, in profiling through that case. They predicted it was a male white in his 30s. You see, it was a male black, 17, and with a, a another male black that was like 32 or 35 that was his his coach and sort of how to shoot people. So I don't take Bill, a lot could you, of- Could you think of a case where a profiling uh, led to an arrest on, on, a, uh, on a serial killer or any case? Can you think of that? No, no. They yeah. were wrong on Ted Kaczynski too, right? Yeah. So I mean, listen- I there's probably some uh, science to it. I, I, a lot of times after the person is caught, they'll say, look, you know, the profile matched up. I, I'm not knocking it, but it doesn't seem like there's been many cases solved based on uh, profiling, you know? I don't think it's it's a viable science. I really don't. I don't think that, uh, you know, as you said, I don't know of a case that the profilers, I want to play a little bit of this too, because for a very good reason. It seems yeah. so general, the profiling, you know? thought I was doing something to... Uh, oh, I'm glad you brought him up. I'm sorry for it, but I, I really don't want to talk about it anymore. He's the because, devil. No, I was, uh, at this time, I had, uh, was serving him. You know, I was uh, serving him. I feel that he had taken over my mind and body, and I, I just surrendered to those very dark forces. I regret that with all my heart, but, you know, that was like 40 years ago, and I understand that it was... a. Uh, uh, demonic thing, and uh, you know, I just opened myself up for some very dark forces to come in, and, and I can't, you know, change that. I, I look at that in disbelief. I can't believe that happened. I look back; none of it makes any sense. It doesn't, yeah, doesn't make any sense at all. I was under strong delusions. That's what happens when you uh, come under those powers. You're under strong delusions. You just, don't, you know, you look back and say, "What, what the heck happened?" That was just a, just a, you know, just a mental darkness. I was serving Satan. Folks, in case you don't know, that was a, a, a serial killer uh, who was shooting people with a 44 caliber bulldog in, I believe, it was 1977. And it yep. threw the whole city of New York into panic. People weren't going out at night, clubs, restaurants. Uh, the city was suffering because people were afraid to go into New York City, and that was the son of Sam. And I believe he shot and killed approximately seven people and wounded others. And uh, 
you know, all these people get all this notoriety and then of course they go to prison and they find the Lord, you know, uh, I just always have questions about that. Yeah, there were a lot of questions surrounding uh, David Berkowitz, the son of Sam Killer, also labeled a 44 caliber killer based on what you just said, uh, Billy. He was using a 44 caliber bulldog uh, to shoot his victims. And the other scary thing about Berkowitz, uh, if he acted alone, which that's still uh, the jury's still out on that, um, there's indications that he didn't act alone. However, he took the weight of the whole, uh, you know, serial killer situation. But the scary thing about it was, is that he went, you know, New York City has five boroughs, Manhattan, the Bronx, Queens, Brooklyn and Staten Island. He was firing in Brooklyn. He was firing in Queens. Um, so that was the scary part because he was spread out so far. And the key to that whole case, here was the key to that case, how they caught him. Uh, he double parked his car about two blocks from one of the locations where he did a shooting and he was issued actually not double parked. I think it was parked in a fire hydrant, parked in a fire hydrant. He was issued a parking ticket and that led to the whole case coming together. The officer uh, that wrote the ticket, went to the detectives the next day and said, listen, I wrote a parking ticket right before that shooting took place. They went up to the location where the car was registered to, it was upstate New York. And um, they went to the car, they looked in the car and they saw the butt of a gun sticking out of a paper bag and they knew that they were on the right track. Uh, they surveilled the vehicle. Berkowitz came out of the house, they grabbed him and he wound up uh, basically making a, a spontaneous utterance like what what took so long for you guys to get me something something to that I don't know if that's the exact wording but he did make a statement self-incriminating and then the whole case just came together and he was arrested and the uh the shooting spree stopped Patricia Bell yes old-fashioned police work exactly. got him and that police officer was promoted to detective like the next day he, he was a field training officer that i worked with when i came yeah. on the job Billy. and so at least yeah. the department did the right thing uh yes uh by him lieutenant pete uh used our own cars flooded the parks plain clothes brooklyn caught by someone's cop remembered lieutenant pete was working that uh the son of sam thing Respect, so, uh, Lieutenant Pete. Yeah, there you yeah go. absolutely. Lieutenant Pete's a real uh, NYPD icon. You know, one of the things someone just mentioned in the chat, and I, I and I really respect all you guys in the chat, and I respect your opinions. Here it is: Seashells Prosperity at Silvio Madrano. Hello, I do. Victims never robbed. Acts near bike trails. Mornings, lone people, but witnesses. Less victims survived. Left 2018, not 2020, or in 2022. Duck walk. I don't know exactly what all that means, but what I think what you're referring to, this person is not robbing anyone. That's not his motive. He has no motive to rob. His motive is to kill people, you know, and that's really scary because he's not out there to do a robbery. However, he is out there to take someone's life. And that, that when you think about that, someone just going out into the, I would imagine the homeless encampments, Parks, places where homeless people are staying overnight. And he's just looking. They had a guy like that in New York City. And I think he did two or three, and then they caught him. I think, and, you yeah, know, you're right. Just not long ago, Billy. Just very about, recently. And, you know, one of the things that solves more crime than, than uh, anything is video. And they caught this guy on video. And otherwise, can you imagine, you wouldn't have a description because here he's going up to a homeless guy sleeping and just shooting him. How are you going to ever have a description? But video gives us that description. 
Absolutely, Billy. And uh, yeah, based on uh, what we know about this case, um, you know, interviews of homeless people is probably going to be very important because maybe there's going to be some homeless person that might say, hey, you know, I had a problem with a guy and, you know, whatever. I knew he was carrying a gun or something to that effect. So, again, all of those things should be being done. Obviously, video footage, uh, traffic camera footage, anything in the area. And it appears that he traveled some distances so that perhaps he does have a vehicle. Again, going through parking tickets, going through plate readers to see vehicles that were in and around uh, those shootings at that time. That's going to be very important because we have a specific time frame. We know the times that the shooting took place. So if you get the uh, traffic cameras in the area and you pull all the plates that are in that area, if it's uh, you know late at night, it might not be that many. And you go interview all of these people, you might stumble onto the right suspect. 100%. Lady Red, I think he could possibly be homeless himself. Lady Red, I said the same awesome. exact thing. I agree with you. He has some beef against homeless people. Uh, why is he shooting homeless people? What you know? What did they do to him? Uh, Seashells Prospera, yes, it's to kill men of another race, no matter the age, men who aren't watching their backs, men that are alone without a crew. He's on foot and travels publicly. Seashells Prosperity, I, I think, yeah, he's, work, he's walking, but... I, he, the, the the crimes are over a, a pretty uh, distant geographic area, so I think he, he's either has his own car, or you know, could he be taking public transportation? Absolutely, but yes, he's walking into these homeless encampments, and I think that uh, six out of the seven people were homeless. So clearly, he's targeting uh, that that uh, type of person. He could be homeless and living in a vehicle too, and maybe had some type of an issue uh, before he had the vehicle, or maybe wanted to, you know, enter into one of these homeless encampments, and there was some type of a dispute. So again, uh, whether he's using public transportation or not, I think that remains to be seen. If he is, perhaps they could get video surveillance from public transportation locations. Buses and trains usually have uh, video surveillance. But it does sound like because he's traveling these distances that he possibly does have a vehicle. Again, there are many homeless people that, uh, you know, they lose their homes and then they wind up in the in a vehicle and they'll live out of them. I mean, we've seen stories like that on the news many times. But uh, this guy needs to be stopped. He's shooting innocent people. Uh, that one woman that you did, I listened to the interview in the car earlier, Bill, where she ran towards him. I thought that was really quite uh, heroic. Maybe she couldn't run away and she ran towards him and it probably saved her life. And I think that that uh, changed his, uh, you know, his methodology because uh, he's got control when he's got the gun and he's firing at innocent people. When someone charged him, changed his posture uh, dramatically. And uh, I believe that was the last shooting. So let's see what that, uh, you know, what that turns into if he uh, maybe pulls back and goes into another area or stops altogether. Richella Pranzo, I honestly think he is one of the homeless community. One of them would definitely know who he is and report it for their own safety. Richella, I agree with you. I, I think that he, he potentially could be a homeless person himself. And, you know, there's there's self-hatred sometimes and things like that. People, they're targeting, they're almost like shooting themselves when yes. they're shooting someone that's like them, you know. And and I, I think that's a good observation, Richella, and I agree. I'm going to play a little bit of this here. And the search for a potential serial killer. New this morning from Stockton, police are now offering a reward 
of $125,000 for information leading to an arrest. And check this video released by Stockton PD. They're looking for this person in connection to the string of killings. Police say this person has been seen at more than one of the crime scenes. Elements of the crime that you can link indicating the same person committing both crimes, I would consider that the beginning or a serial murder case. Now police are facing questions on if surrounding cities may be targeted. And take a look. These are the known victims in this case who all died between April of last year and this September. The first five victims were from Stockton, while Vasquez Serrano was killed in Oakland. Again, police say the only survivor was a 46-year-old homeless black woman shot in April of last year in Stockton. Our Devin Truby continues to follow this story. She has details on what police are now saying about this case. Concerning information, police say the possible serial killer appears to be on some sort of mission. And while described as mission-oriented, police still have no idea what the motive could be. With crimes being connected from Oakland to Stockton, Stockton police say it is possible as they continue to put evidence into the system, they might get more hits, but only time will tell. The sheriff is providing resources and onboarding new technology to help with the case. A task force has been created within Stockton Police Department. Some of those officers we found out have been working around the clock and have yet to go home. A warning from the chief saying, let me be honest, this impacts everyone. This appears to be very fluid and, and intentional in what that one person or, or multiple people are doing. Well, we don't know what's because we've had male, we've had female, we've had different races. We don't know exactly what they're targeting. We've had folks that live in homes. We've had folks that don't live in homes. So at, at this point, we just don't know. But a strong message from the police and the community saying not to attribute these killings to the fact that this is just Stockton because that minimizes the loss of life here that the community has been experiencing. Police are now saying that ballistics and some video were tying the crime scenes together. They wouldn't say if the same gun was used in all seven incidents, but in the press conference, only a single pistol was referenced. I don't know why they're holding that information back. Why would they not say all seven incidents, the same gun was used? It's the same guy. Why wouldn't they say that? I just thought, you know, what are they, what are they hiding? They're saying we have a serial shooter here, a serial killer. Why won't they tell you? It's the other problem I have here is how do they know there's not more cases in other jurisdictions? Let's know the scope, the full scope. This is what's going to tie these cases together. This is a science that they cannot deny. Why is this guy, the, the chief there, not opening up and saying, yes, it's the same gun. It's the same guy. I, I, I just can't understand that. Yeah, that's a little unusual, Billy. It sounds like they have one foot in the water and one foot on land yet, and they uh, they need to get together on that. I mean, they're giving so much information out there saying that all the shootings are tied together, but they're not mentioning if it's the same firearm. So that is a little bit unusual here. And when you played that video, something struck me. Number one, it does look like there possibly could be some type of a bulge on his ankle. So you talked about that. That could possibly maybe has an ankle holster on. But also, if you watch that video and you you know someone it's very easy to, to to even though you don't see a clear shot of their face i mean if you're a loved one or a friend of that individual you'll be able to tell that's so and so by his walk i mean it's a pretty good a full body uh view of the person walking and 
the fact that they put out the large reward, I think that motivates people. That's a great thing that they did. Uh, you know, you're talking about over $100,000 as far as reward money. And if there's someone that knows this individual, whether it be a loved one or a friend, they should definitely pick up the phone, call and give the information to the police. Let the police go talk to that individual and either include them or exclude them from this investigation. He's killing uh, innocent people, whether they be homeless or not, they don't deserve this. And listen, uh, if you think you know who it is, pick up the phone, make the call. If you see something, say something. And I think that anybody that knows this individual will be able to tell just by that, that posture that he took. That's not that hard to uh, put it together. If you know this individual. Yale Salatori, thank you for the 499 super sticker. Very much appreciated. Um, uh, Agatha was so Shansky. I hope I pronounced that right. I don't think he is homeless. Okay. I mean, look, everyone has a right. Where are his hands in his pocket during that video? It, it, it appears they're in his jacket pocket. Um, look, I, I won't criticize anyone for that. You can have whatever opinion you want, as long as it's reasonable. If someone says, Oh, I think he flew in in a helicopter, then I would say, Yeah, I don't think that's, uh, you know, that's right. correct. But, uh, Look, we, it, they're on track. There's $125,000 reward. The ballistic ties these incidents together, okay? And I went over yesterday, I went over a lot of the science to the ballistics. This is something called IBIS, which stands for Integrated Ballistics Identification System. And the profile from a bullet or from a shell casing could be in, put into IBIS, and it can link cases together and make an identification in seconds. And there's thousands and thousands of cases in here. So that science is what's going to contribute to identifying uh, this person. And the of course, the gun. It's going to link the gun and link cases together. So that's how we'll know if it's gone outside of Stockton and into other areas. Well, one of the cases was in Oakland. Um, you know, and one of the things I would, I know, I know because the female was shot at seven times. So we know it's not a revolver because he didn't reload. So he shot at her seven times. Hit her, hit her six. She's a, she's still alive. God bless her, you know? Absolutely, Billy. And again, um, you know, a person that's doing this could also be involved in other uh, criminal activity. So if a person is arrested with a gun, let's say doing a, a robbery or, you know, threaten somebody with a gun, menacing, whatever it is, that gun is recovered. They're going to do the ballistics comparison and they'll tie it to the uh, to the shootings here. And that might be one of the ways, one of the avenues that this uh, whole case could come together. So, again, uh, we don't know exactly what the caliber is. They're not releasing that. We don't know. Uh, they're not saying if uh, the same gun was used in all the shootings, although we, we're thinking that it probably was. Uh, not having the case folder in front of you, you don't know really what direction they're going in with this case or what information there could be better video and they're just not releasing it. Or there could be other video that they're not releasing. There could be a vehicle tied to this that they're not telling us about. So again, all of those things, I would think in a case like this with such a, uh, you know, a uh, big push, it's a serial killing, uh, seven or uh, seven victims already that we know of that they might want to release that type of information. Although there's different times when, uh, you know, they don't want to put too much out, cause panic and stuff like that. So again, not having the case folder in front of you, a lot of it, whether or not he's ho homeless or not, 
is really up in the air. I mean, it could go either way in, in my view at this point. I don't have an opinion on it at this point. I mean, could lean towards being a homeless person because that would give motive to him attacking ho homeless people. Perhaps he had a problem with other homeless people. So again, it's really up in the air. Not having the case folder is uh, is a little bit uh, you know premature to make 100% uh, uh, statements on this case. Beautiful day. Thank you for the 199 super sticker. You know, folks, we're going to stay on top of this case and report to you. It's interesting. I, I don't understand, to tell you the truth, why he's not releasing the fact that it's the same gun and it's the same. Uh, Plus a better movie. description, Billy. I think they have a better description. They're kind of vague on that, too. So, I mean, he's vague know, on a lot of stuff. It's almost like he's trying to protect the jurisdiction from maybe panic. Well, it's not panic. You got seven shootings. Tell the people yeah. so that they can take precautions. Exactly. And you could get a height and weight and you can just on that video, you could do that. They don't, they're being kind of vague with the description. And I think that, you know, listen, uh, she'll, even though he was wearing the, the, uh, the COVID mask, she might be able to tell if he's, uh, Caucasian, if he's African-American, if he's Hispanic, you know, I don't know if they're talking about that, but, uh, Again, I think they could come out with a little bit better description based on height and weight and stuff like that. Absolutely. Phil, just go through this. and uh... Joe Murray, attorney at law. Have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He literally knows both sides of defense. His website, as you can see, is jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702, or you can email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. It was a pleasure to have Joe on the other night. We uh, discussed that other case, and uh, good man, Joe Murray, and a great attorney. Joe Murray's great. I get a little jealous. You know, all the women are like, oh, yeah. my God, Joe Murray, the silver fox. Joe Murray this, Joe Murray that. I was like, that's what it, Joe. We? You're not coming on this show anymore. What are we taking away all my attention? <laughs> Just kidding. Love Joe Murray. Yes. <laughs> But I, I'm amazed at how much attention he gets. So all, all you ladies love Joe Murray, and it's um, and at this point, I just want to thank all you guys for supporting Police Off the Cuff, for supporting Real Crime Stories, for coming on during the day at this hour and and watching and supporting us and really being engaged in these cases. And and I really appreciate that so much. And I just wanted to say that we're going to stay on top of this case. Hopefully. There'll be in a break a break in this case very soon, and we'd love to report that someone was arrested and the shooting has stopped and the killing has stopped. Bill? Yeah, final words. Uh, I just wanted to thank all the subscribers, all the fans, all the listeners. You guys are our friends. Without the support of you guys, there would be no police off the cuff, real crime stories. This is a very interesting case. It's a scary case. I hope sooner rather than later that this guy is captured and apprehended. And no one, I don't care who you are, deserves to be uh, shot and killed like this randomly. So again, let's stay on top of this case. Uh, I apologize for coming on a little late. I was out and about when, uh, Bill gave me the heads up about going on this afternoon, but it was a pleasure to be on Billy. Thank you so much. And, uh, thanks for coming on. Right. People, people were asking, where's Phil? I don't know. He's uh, have you checked the Italian restaurants in Brooklyn? I was getting a veal parmesan, <laughs> Bill. I was getting my lunch together. I know. Someone said, I spotted him. He was walking out of the subway station at such and such a street with a veal cutlet parmesan hero in his hand. That's it. I had to get lunch, baby. That's right. Folks, thank you so much for listening. Have a great day and God bless. Stay safe, everybody. One episode, just